This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by ChasingArtwork.com, where you can buy the brand new Dragon Nanny graphic novel, as well as limited edition foils. They're only going to be up there for a short amount of time, so this is your last chance in 2020 to pick up a copy. Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am your uh, tardy host who has left my two co-hosts waiting for 20 minutes while I did too many math problems with my son. Uh, joining me today are Dan Vettavonker and Justin Curry, also known as Chasing Artwork, uh, the two most patient men in the business. That's okay. We were just good. We were just talking about Star Trek and stuff like that. That's That's all. So yeah. we made we made good use of the time. The f- and, uh, for the first time in the history of time, I think, two human beings were having fun calculating the distances traveled by trains in <laughs> word and number problems to the point where my son and I lost track of the time. I told him, "Okay, we can do this till three o'clock," but we went twenty minutes over doing math problems. And I'm, uh, uh, I'm I think both that's a good sign. But also completely amazed that mm-hmm. uh, that that occurred. So, gentlemen, we're in a weird world, clearly, where up is down, businesses are closed, and math problems, word problems are fun. Whatever's going on in this new universe we find ourselves in. I'm glad you're here with me. Woo! Um, Woo! <laughs> for the uh, dear listener... Um, I'll also let you know that I'm a little punchy today because my new sleep schedule keeps me up till about 2 or 3 a.m. most nights lately, and uh, uh, I'm getting a little foggy these days. I was talking to another collaborator about how foggy I've been getting as a result. So uh, uh, on the plus side, though, we have been drawing in stacks and stacks of books just in far outreaching me in that capacity, but I'm starting to catch up. (laughs) I, uh, I have a huge amount of, I've been bringing books home every evening as well. So I, I draw in the studio all day and Dragon Nanny books. And then I carry two boxes out to my car when I leave. And so now I've accumulated, I've got like eight boxes waiting by the door to go back to the studio once again. Um, when I get sick right. of drawing at the studio. Yeah, the it's, I, did, it's, I, I, I oh. got into the no mind state. I did about 200 drawings in a row. You know, times three minutes, however long that is, uh, for each drawing. And at a certain point, I realized that I was no longer actually like, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Yeah, like totally. Like this robot was appearing in front of me, or this like weird figure was just like uh, appearing in front of me. And uh, the muscle control didn't seem connected to my brainstem any longer. It was just like <laughs> I had a set of commands that I could just push and it would just draw in the next book and then the next book and then the next book. And uh, when I, last night I had an orange and I could literally feel the sugars return to my brain <laughs> and restore me to a semblance of conscious life. So um, it's been both uh, strange, uh, interesting, fun, but also scary to do all of these drawings in like straight sittings. Um, I was explaining to my kids, they're like, you know, why are you getting so weird about this? 
And I said, you know, when we're at shows, you do it like every 10 minutes, yeah. every 20 minutes. And so it doesn't even like doing something for three minutes every 20 minutes, you don't even notice. It just happens. But uh, doing something that takes three minutes 200 times in an evening gets uh, turns into morning. It's, yeah, it's quite a strange experience. I agree. And it's also weird too. Every once in a while, I'll, um, I'll have a stack of older books to draw in and one of them will already have a drawing in and I have no recollection whatsoever of drawing that. You know, like it obviously took me 10, 15 minutes to do this sketch and it was probably at a convention while I was waiting for um, like, you know, the show to start kind of thing, but no recollection of it at all. Yeah, I found a few like, of those. Instead of Rust and Water, I found a few of those. They were just like random yeah. books that were somehow in cases that or stacks of undrawn in books. And I'd open it and there was a, clearly a sketch that you or I had done waiting somewhere with lots of time. And so like one in, I don't know what we'd say, like one in a hundred of the books has this really elaborate mm-hmm. painted sketch in it also yeah. just by accident. So those are also, um, you know, I, I had to do this uh, kind of thing for, uh, for the Apocrypha book, but I stretched it out much more, uh, I don't know, there was a painted element, so I was waiting for that to dry, and that seemed to reset my brain a little bit more, oh, yeah. whereas in these ones, it's, uh, yeah, it's, over, it's overtaken my consciousness. And uh, I'm not sure if it's healthy or not, but it, they're definitely turning up. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I'm, I'm hearing somebody breathing on the, uh, the audio. Are you, well, is that just me? Is that me? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe? Everyone breathes for the audio purposes. <laughs> we'll let the reader decide if there's a ghost. <gasps> it just, Maybe, yeah, it, it seemed like something was getting picked Okay. I'll just point the mic away from uh, my. I'll do what I'm supposed to do is just point the mic away from my mouth when I'm not talking. That's the that's the technique. Are we going to edit around that? I'm sure I can edit around that. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, So we're on the road to fulfillment of uh, Dragon Nanny. Justin has turned this this. I, I arrived at the studio to find that it had been turned into essentially a war room. Uh, each sort of area in the studio has a label in it now and a like landing pad for packaged books and uh, these little notes for what each of the weights of each of the packages has to be and what's supposed to be in it. And everywhere we turn, like the, it, it's like being inside the organization of his brain. Uh, so I have just sort of stepped. I can't step back and say, I'm going to fill out these books. I can't take credit for that. That's, that's all Darcy. Is that Darcy? Darcy. That's all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for doing that. I felt so, it was like coming into a warm hug of organization. (laughs) I looked around the studio. I spun around and I was like, Oh, and that'll go there. And that'll go there. Oh, and those (laughs) will go over there. And Oh, and that's how much that is. I just was like, wow, they really have this under control. I just, you should pass along from me how glorious it was to arrive and just be like, okay, and just shut up and sign this stuff. Just fill this in, 
Someone's clearly <laughs> thought this out more clearly than you can. Well, it was, uh, it was really nice because so like good. mentally trying to juggle the thoughts of all the, the logistical puzzles of, you know, we have 500 orders going out and a lot of them have variations on them, right? It's not just single books. It's a book and these three prints and then a book and a canvas and a book and another book and these three prints. Like, so trying to like organize in my head how that is all going to work kind of got alleviated by Darcy coming in and like just kind of taking that part on. And then I could just be like, oh, well, I just have the daunting task of drawing in 500 books in the next couple of days to take care of. And I can just concentrate on doing that and trust that she has everything else figured out. And it looks like she does. Yeah, she totally did. And as I was sorting out stuff that was going to the rural schools, there was like a box for each of them, all numbered. And uh, I can take credit for that part. I did that. <laughs> that, you, that was good. And then I was just depositing. That was okay, that's, you know, here's three automatic ages. Here's three red earths. Here's a couple of uh, uh, rust and waters, you know, just dropping them into the boxes and filling that all out in a way that is a little bit, um, you want it to be all the mindfulness of that organization needs to be have done ahead of time so that then you can be mindless about what you're doing mechanical about fulfillment. So yeah, this is new setting me. up. Yeah. Setting that all up. So you don't have to think about it when, uh, you know, when things really heat up and get crazy, it's always nice to have all that prepped ahead of time. And I think we're really on track with, uh, fulfilling this logistics wise. I, th- I feel very well prepared. I think we've, We've all done a great job. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'll take credit only for the drawing in the books part. Who do I make this up to? A good, good Hemsworth. I um, think we've probably heard too many horror stories of um, the filling orders part of the Kickstarter being a nightmare and the worst part. And so going into this, knowing all that, we've we've over prepared for it, and as a result, I feel like it's the easiest part you know well you know i i can very very clearly point out an enormous luxury you have in having that huge space to spread it out in and then leave the mess if you so many kickstarters are done you know essentially as a home business if we had to set that logistics up you know in my living room or your living room oh god Right? Impossible. Not impossible, but that's certainly the avenue towards madness that I think we're hearing about. Is And so maybe if there's a little like kernel of advice to take away, is that if you have a um, uncle or, a, or someone who has an enormous garage or like just a big space that you can borrow for the week of your fulfillment so you can spread it out, um, real big help like that's for us is huge like coming in and seeing it spread out and that big mess not affecting my ability to do the next step part of the job was uh you know i was thinking about that the other night that also ties into um us trying to get more artists to move to winnipeg that we meet on the road remember for a while there was (laughs) a bunch of toronto artists that i was really trying to sell on come to winnipeg if there's a whole bunch of us we could get like the best studio space you could imagine and like the only reason gregory and i can have this huge studio space is because 
Winnipeg is, is a very reasonable place to live um, square foot cost wise. If we were in any other city, we would not have a studio downtown. We'd be working yeah, out another, of home. Another way sure. to look at that. Yeah. Another way to look at that is in a more expensive city, we'd have to be way more talented yeah. because we'd have to be <laughs> way more successful, but we only have to be just this talented in order to afford this space in Winnipeg. So it's are you saying your friends from Toronto are not as talented? No, they're more talented. Yeah, they have to be. And their talents would go so much farther in Winnipeg, like the dollar right. that they're used to from their talents would go a lot farther if the uh, cost of living is lower. Gotcha. Remember Ron and Indy telling us about like their convention, all their convention supplies fits into like a, a two foot square space that just goes up to the, like they have it so organized and so logistically planned out that they can like all their convention stuff, like just fits in this one corner of their, their house. And they, that's where it goes. Whereas us, we have like 200 square feet of just like explosion. <laughs> and, and that's fine that it, works it, it's uh two it's two different sets of personalities for the dear listener ron and indy run an incredible uh online shop called fable uh with so, so many say again, say again. Uh, original um, screen prints and there's right? some fan art in there you, you cut, fable you said, creative there we go fable yeah. creative okay continue yeah. so they are um they are, they've phased out an, uh, most of their fan art and now do only original creations at Fable Creative. And uh, they have such a meticulous sense of both their total number of inventory units they have, the exact cost for packaging versus mail outs versus advertising. Like they are, um, they have the organization that I could only ever imagine people having because i could i don't even know what it'd be like in that dream scenario they would be living in winnipeg working in the same studio as us and helping us with all our online anything because they have such a better handle on it all than we do that would be Maybe our someday. dream but probably yeah. their nightmare yeah. yeah probably they wouldn't enjoy that as much so it's it's very selfish me wanting them to move to the city but <laughs> <laughs> um but a big a big part of you know any type of freelance related or uh, creative endeavor really has a lot to do with what it costs you to live, you know. And I mean yeah. we're seeing that in the Marvel and DC catalogs, you know, in the in the big three comic companies, you're seeing increasingly the artists are from overseas and increasingly from countries that have a much uh, uh, lower cost of living. Well, even, like, aren't, this, it, no, aren't we seeing a mass exodus of like all major cities right now? Like New York and, and LA, everybody's, if they, if they can move out of those cities, they're, they're moving out right now because if you're working from home and you can't really take advantage of being in a mega metropolis, then, you know, why, why live in a mega metropolis with that yeah. high cost of living? Yeah, totally. Right now, the big cities are, um, there's nothing to offer you except infection right now. <laughs> right? 
um, since so many of the, you know, the industries are closed that make being in a big city so vibrant. I mean, that's all going to yeah. come back uh, given time, oh, but right now. For, yeah. yeah. See, I always uh, thought that was kind of um, nice again about like, we're really advertising Winnipeg on this, uh, this podcast, but um, like I get to live in Winnipeg and where it's affordable to own my own condo and have a big studio downtown. And then I get to travel to all these other convention cities and get a taste of like, I go to Toronto, you know, three times a year, New York twice a year, uh, Montreal. Like I get to, to live in all these cities a week at a time on the road. Um, but then when I come home, I, I still can afford all this space and I don't feel like I'm really missing out too much, you know? Totally. If anyone mm-hmm. thinks we're uh, showing a little too much love for Winnipeg, they can always put on the Venetian Snares album "Winnipeg Is a Frozen Shithole" to balance out <laughs> to balance out our positivity. Um, such tracks include, um, I think, "Winnipeg Is Fucking Over" is one of the tracks in there. Also, so there are some people that hate Winnipeg as much as we love it. So it really <laughs> depends mm-hmm. where you're at. Um, now, I have a question for you, Justin. Uh, do you think our Kickstarter fulfillment has benefited or suffered as a result of you and I not being able to be in the same space while we're working on it? Um, I mean, like, we, we have, we're very different people schedule-wise to begin with. So even when pre-COVID, when we had like, you know, um, access to the studio whenever we wanted. A lot of times, by the time I rolled into the studio, you were about to pack up and leave anyways. So it feels like just a little more controlled version of that. If you're going to be there in the evening, I kind of take the day and, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's, it's affected anything too badly yet. Um, and I think we also, we really covered our bases by not... Um, like having a, a very flexible timeline with delivery. So we're not super rushed on, on anything yet. So us taking turns at the studio hasn't been a, like an encumbrance. Yeah. I mean, one, yeah. Of the, one of the watchwords we set up or sort of like mission statements was that we would try to under-promise and over-deliver. So we haven't, you know, it gives us enough deadline. The, I've been telling my kids as we were doing these math problems, it occurs to me that the uh, advice I always give in these kinds of things is that um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And so you shouldn't rush yeah. through complicated problems. That's how it feels a little bit with the, this fulfillment is that so far we're not racing against a deadline so we're just doing the hard work in a reasonable fashion. Now, it, it started at the beginning, like I was saying, like, oh, man, you know, I'm losing my mind doing this. But that has less to do with the time allotted and more to do with um, the way my daily schedule is. I have those hours only at the end of the day to do it. I don't have to get up super early in the morning these days. So it's been working out okay. But uh, I think the uh, the big impact would be, like, usually when we're at, the studio, like probably a third of our time is um, coming up with crazy schemes and bouncing ideas around. And so many projects have come from that. So I think there's definitely been a bit of a lack of, of that this year. Like, oh, what if we, 
printed things on, you know, what if we printed this crazy thing and tried to sell it that way and, and did this as a, something people could buy and try that. Like we're always coming up with different products to in, add to the inventory. And I think that's kind of slowed down. And then with funny. like the, the whole Dragon Nanny project, you, would, you weren't as involved this time around just because we had to sequester ourselves in our own little homes and, and we couldn't have that back and forth that we usually have. Yeah, totally. I was just thinking of that as I was transferring some ideas from one notebook to the next. You know, we've talked on previous episodes the way that you and I will take our lists from a previous sketchbook and transfer whatever ideas we don't think we're done with yet into the new sketchbook and then think about them more. There's a lot less wild, crazy what-ifs that I've transferred over in the last few months, which is usually a thing that is generated by those conversations. That's, that's definitely true. Well, not just us, but when we're on the road with other artists and, and we're seeing all these other creative people and their solution to doing things, right? We'll go around a convention floor and kind of pick cool ideas that we want to try to incorporate into our own businesses that, you know, we're, we're just not seeing quite as much of, we just don't get as much inspiration in person anymore. What is your business model? I don't have a business model. I am an actor. I date models. It'll all come back. It'll all come back. What if it doesn't? Let's play a thought experiment. That there's no more shows ever. I think uh, I actually, I, before this, before recording the podcast, I was doing a, uh, I did a phone interview for, um, I was just part of a Pure Later project where I designed a, a holiday box. And so as a result, I've gotten all this media attention for this Pure Later project that I'm quickly turning into media attention for Dragon Nanny um, because the Pure Later project took me one day and Dragon Nanny, Nanny took me seven months. So I'm trying to like gear all the attention to that. Um, but somebody was, yeah, asking, like, you, you keep referencing pre-COVID business plan, but what's your business plan moving forward? And I was kind of thinking, like, yeah, my, my, my business plan has, has kind of always been with the expectation that in a couple of months, shows are going to start back up. But just gauging by, like, how my business has kind of pivoted and, and evolved over the last couple of months of zero shows... I can just see that that change continuing and things would just continue changing to fit this new shape that is the world that we live in. So I'm not too worried. Like, I don't have any distinct plans. I just know that I'll, I'll keep trying things and doing things and it'll eventually all snap into place. So that's my pantsing answer. Pantsing. I'm not worried. I'm, yeah, I'm just... I'm going to just keep making things and keep trying to sell them and it'll all work out. I think that's good. Just general advice is just to keep trying. Um, I was looking at, uh, you know, in some other businesses, there's a, you know, basically talk that it's three years still before shows will be back to the way they were. And if that's true, then how do you, move around it and and what book sales are like and what distribution is like and if you know if that keeps up um and i'll give a little context here for the listener um i follow or interact with sort of 15 or 
20 regular authors on, uh, say, Twitter. These are not people who are my friends or even really specifically my peers, but these are people who are um, publishing kind of the sorts of books that I publish in around the numbers that I sell, uh, most of them reporting that their year or their last seven months royalty statements from regular publishing is almost zero. Like that the number of returns were enormous. The book sales through regular channels were flat. Um, One author was talking about a perennial bestseller of his that for the first time in 10 years earned zero royalties. Um, And I mean, I could name it, but it's, it's no point really. The point here is in the math is that if we have this trend of a flattening of the way that people are used to doing things, it'll only be people like you, Justin, who are just trying a bunch of new stuff that are going to stumble across whatever that new formula is, right? I think if we all are chasing, the pun intended, I guess, in your case, if we're all chasing how it used to be, then that's what we're going to get. And that's all changed now. So we have to really start thinking about what are some new models. I ordered a few books, um, uh, Anyone interested in kids' books, don't order these, but there's an imprint called uh, King Hell by Rick Veach, who uh, he's known for doing the V for Vendetta graphic novel most famously, but he does a lot of self-published, pretty hardcore outlaw comics, independent comics. Uh, And he's moved exclusively to publishing through Amazon. This is pre-COVID. He took all of his books and he said, listen, the print-on-demand technology is at the place now where I can print 50 copies of something or 50,000 copies of something and it costs me the same, uh, which is zero because they just take a percentage of what is selling. Um, And he's a guy who sometimes has a hit and sometimes has a miss, but he makes a new book. It seems to me every couple of months he has a new book out um, through his own independent print-on-demand, King Hell publishing sort of imprint on Amazon. And he was saying in a more recent interview that, yes, Amazon is a kind of a disruptor, and yes, it hurts maybe small businesses, and yes, it hurts small bookstores. But from his perspective, small bookstores always hurt him anyway. He never made money from them because the margins were so thin. And so suddenly this technology existed where he could make the book, skip interacting with a printer, skip interacting with the publisher and just get it to people. Um, he didn't like traveling, it seemed, anyway. And so he's, his work has kind of, I think, expanded quite a lot into comic book land most recently in the last five months because he already had this way of fulfilling a need that he didn't know was going to explode. People want comics. Stores are closed. People are buying independent comics at an incredible rate. You know, Kickstarter posted 22 million for last month's in raised by comics on Kickstarter. So independent comics are having a renaissance. Comic stores the world over are closing. Uh, bookstores the world over are closing. But it has not stopped the demand for those things. And, and because digital tools let people just pivot to go direct. It feels like there's a, you know, there is a way to do your thing your way and still get paid. 
Yeah, it feels from what I've we've we've kind of seen in the last couple of months for for you and me, Kickstarter seems to be a, a great option for the foreseeable future um, for for printing our books and getting them distributed. Uh, I'm not I'm not too familiar with selling anything on Amazon. Like I know the the print on demand um, feature that they they offer. But if I were to put a, a book on Amazon tomorrow, once that listing goes live, is it really like any other thing? Is it up to me to get people to find it? Or does Amazon have some kind of new author uh, feature that kind of gets your book to the, the front of, of searches? Or do they have some kind of like community that will um, like promote your book like is it just listing it on the store and it's it's all up to you or is there anything else to it so if i was going to give myself right now a report card on how much i know about amazon print on demand i would say i'm sort of sitting between a d plus and a c minus somewhere so okay color these answers with the, what i was what i want to say is the answer to each one of your questions is yes there's a way for them to help you do all of those things, all of them cost money. A guy like, oh. uh, right? A guy like Rich Veach, a guy like State of this King Helen print, one of the reasons why I've been looking at his work and sort of tracking it and, and unpacking it is he's a guy with a lot of gray in his beard. He's a person who's been around the comic book world a long time and his output has not suffered as a result. He's moved in and out of traditional publishing and self-publishing for a long career. And I said, you know, I mean, there's a lot of young people doing self-publishing in lots of different ways, but they'll approach it with the fervor of youth, right? That, that carefree fearlessness of youth. What I wanted to do is find someone who was making comics that felt youthful, but I knew was actually a little long in the tooth, had been around a long time, had had his nose bloodied by bad contracts many times. How is he approaching this new world and what kind of moves is he making? And that is what has got me looking at this is that if I don't know for a fact, but it seems like somebody who is as um, anti-disestablishmentarianist as Rick Beach still thinks Amazon is the best way to go. Uh, it must be worth looking into. I have an audition. Mr. Clint Eastwood. Could you maybe put in a good word for me? All famous people don't know all other famous people, Ray. But yeah, I know them. And then there's that also like the, the whole print-on-demand model. Um, once you finish your book, you're, you don't have to pay thousands of dollars to get it printed. Once you have it up there, it's printed one at a time as it's sold. So you're, you're not having to, other than your time, um, there's not a huge investment. So I, I'm sure like there's, there's a ton of, of new authors and new artists trying out that model. Now, I'm sure this is colored by the fact that he'll have a back catalog. So he's getting paid royalties yeah. on other for a whole career worth of books. Um, and it's also that most of his independent stuff, most of his self-published work is black and white. So finding reliable print-on-demand black and white technology very simple these days. It used to be hard, but like almost effortless to find a good print on demand that just does. And the reason I know they're good is because I ordered some. And yeah. uh, it's on my mind because they arrived today and I spent some time going through them. Um, um, 
I'm sure anyone peering through the window would have seen me. The first thing I did when I opened it was I cracked the spine and tried to see just how durable the print job was. Now, these were books I wanted to read, I bought to read, but I was also bought them as an experiment. Like, just how robust is this printing? It's just come from outside. And this was at a key point. It's outside, which means the glue is cold, right? And so now when you spread it, if it shatters, then the glue is cheap, right? If the glue opens well when it's cold, it's a more expensive, right? It's a better product that has got that binding together, right? Because it stays gummy even at low temperatures. Um, And it held together pretty well. I have to say, I caused no damage to it. I gave it a good Winnipeg cold test um, as it came in. So there's, you know, technology is catching up. Um, most of the books that I have behind me in this library here uh, are black and white printed texts that at the time were difficult to print. And these days you could print on demand with, you know, no worries as to the quality. Um, but you have to do... In my, uh, yeah. In uh, my last call, we, um, the, the interviewer, we got talking about uh, Silver Age comics. And uh, he mentioned he had the first six episodes of the Hulk um, back when it was printed in the sixties, I believe. And the Hulk was originally gray, not green, but it turned out the gray was too hard to print. They had too many printing issues with gray. So they changed them to green so they could properly print. And it's just like such an alien idea now that you couldn't like, you couldn't print gray properly. Like how, how is that possible? Yeah. The old color separation s- process made it really difficult to do grays. Yeah. We're so spoiled with our printing nowadays. Oh, it's, it's actually sickening. When I look through the old artist editions from things made at that time, and I look at color separations, I have a collection of um, color separations that I got from Laverne Kazursky from the Sandman comics. So these are like scans of the original art. And then the color separation layers all on, on plastic sheets with the color guides. Like the amount of, it's actually embarrassing to me if someone says, oh, you color your own work, who is from that era? Because I have to put in no effort compared to the effort that they're used to putting in for that kind of thing. Like the digital, the change in digital printing and color as it, we have an embarrassment of riches. And um, I guess where I'm going with that is print on demand with color is not there yet. You can get a wide variety of qualities if you're doing print on demand in its color books. But it's improving much faster than even the black and white printing did. It took about 10 years for black and white print. You're cutting out. Hello? You're cutting out, Greg. You're freezing up. Justin, are you still there? At all. And now they're everywhere. They're not, the, the, the quality is very uneven, but it's only a matter of time. In your, your research of this, have you found like the Amazon is, is pretty big and a little evil. Um, is there a website or a company that's doing print on demand that you would recommend people look into besides? Amazon store? Okay, so that I would recommend, 
I would only recommend something that I actually have held and reviewed the physical products myself. So none that I myself would recommend. Are there many out there doing and claiming to do similar services? Thousands. Um, so what I've been doing instead is I've been looking through um, artists' websites for, you know, like people that I, you know, say like Simon Roy or other people like who are from comic book land, who's their work I would normally find at a show um, that I can't wait to get the next thing. They're getting their stuff, many of them printed as print on demands. And so when those come in, I reach been reaching out to them by email to say, you know, where was this printed? How was it done? You know, I'm doing that as a maker to a maker. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but so far, I've only have examples that I wouldn't want right. that I've held <laughs> when it comes to color things. So I haven't found a print on demand that can do color that I would recommend. Um, and my, and ever, so go ahead. Do you ever get a little protective with your industry secrets? I used to be in this case, I'm not being vague on purpose. I'm being vague because um, number one, I don't have the notes in front of me, but number two, None of them have blown me away the way that, and this is what I'd say, like Hignell printing here in Winnipeg was a, is definitely an industry secret for me, right? That when I need Not a really high quality, yeah, when I need a really high quality low print run and I want to be treated like it's like I'm a big client, they're amazing. You know, it's like I'm printing 200 copies of, uh, of some super low run, like weird experiment book and I get proof checks i get press checks i get like four or five things come you know like just as if it's fifty thousand books they're treating it the same and i'm only printing a couple hundred i love them i think they're amazing and their quality is wonderful and they're local so i i it's you know if you're listening to this and you're very far away the shipping difference would probably mean you don't want to go with hignell but if you're in winnipeg check them for sure yeah, it's always uh, anything like that where you're talking about a pallet at the end of the, uh, you know, at the end of that production, uh, local can save you a, a buttload. Oh, yeah, just an enormous amount. How about you? What industry secrets do you not like sharing? You don't have to share them, but so, like you can classify them. Well, I, I brought that up because it was just reminding me of um, like some some convention conversations where there was there's a couple of people who always had a lot of in-depth questions that when I would then like kind of after I would tell them about how things were done, I would try to ask them similar questions and they'd immediately clam up. Like they're allowed to get to like, get information to get out of me, from but they, me, and they're not we're not going to like, if this isn't back and forth, if this isn't a two way street, then I think the conversation is going to just stop. And that's right. happened more than once, sadly. Yeah. Um, and for the dear listener that's wondering what a conversation like that we're alluding to sounds like, it's, oh, where do you get your big poster printing done? Oh, yeah. How much is it for, you know, 500 of those? Oh, interesting. And, you know, do they ship anywhere? Oh, great. Yeah, that's way better than this. And then you ask in return, you know, where'd you get your hardcover books printed? Oh, well, maybe I'll email you about that which really is code for, I'll never tell you. <laughs> Why though? Why is that such an important thing to keep a secret? I don't understand. Well, Dan, 
people are weird about what they think caused their success. Oh, but they, wouldn't you want to share that so other people can have success? Yeah, I think so. Like, I'll give you the, the best, my, my number one way that I got into making comics, here was the secret to me getting into comics. And Donovan, if you're listening, you'll know this story. I found yearbook printers. I wanted oh, yeah. to print full-color graphic novels that were hardcover, you know, roughly 120 pages or so. Guess what? That's what a yearbook is in most cases. So I called a bunch of yearbook printers and I said, um, you know, could I change the print dimensions a little bit for our yearbooks? And they said, oh, sure. How many do you need? And they're used to printing runs of between 500 and maybe two or 3,000, right? So it's right in the wheelhouse and got quotes on yearbook printing. If you want to print hardcover, full color graphic novels, find yearbook printers, but don't send them a file with kids' pictures in it. Send them your comics instead. And they will ask at the end of the production line, they'll say, wait, this isn't a yearbook. And you'll say, well, no, it's not. But thank you for your service. <laughs> Is that what they said? After they printed it, they said, wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> and, you know, at that time, it might be a little different now because digital printing has changed things. Um, it was kind of a niche market. And so um, I was wanting to print my quote unquote yearbook not at normal yearbook printing times. So there was lots uh, of time where the presses right. were idle. And so I got a, a, a much better price printing out of season, out of busy yearbook printing season. Mm -hmm. I asked them when their busiest time was and I said, okay, great. And then I asked them the opposite, you're right. If I, if I print in these opposite months, is there a, is there some benefit to me? And of course there is. Mm -hmm. So that's an industry secret gasp that anyone can apply <laughs> gasp simply to make the book, but the book has to be good, right? That's not getting a good price per unit on 2000 things. Doesn't matter if nobody, if people only buy 10 of them, I'll tell you everything for $70,000. I mean, let's face it. Artists are a superstitious and cowardly lot. We all think that we're not good enough. And we think that it must be by accident that anyone likes our stuff. And we think, oh man, the stars must have aligned because it couldn't have been me, right? There's so much insecurity in the art world and you try to control just whatever you can control. And if you think that your leg up was this printer, then I guess you don't want to share it. But that's not true, right? It's your work that matters, not the, the machine that printed it. I think uh, like when, when I would see it happen at shows, it was always when, when emerging artists are starting out, you know, you kind of, you go around and you ask as many questions as you can. You try to do as much research as possible. But then as soon as you get a foothold in the industry and you get more established, it's more and more common that you kind of, you hold that information tight and you don't want to tell anybody because, you know, you're, you're at the point of your journey where, you know, you've, you've built something and you don't want to let anybody else know how you built it. But that was how you got there was you went around asking, how do I do this? Well, that's what you did for your Kickstarter, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. God, yeah. Yeah. Well, and even uh, when Justin and I started uh, sharing studio space, 
you know, he was very uh, forthright with how he was doing his print printing, where he was doing it, you know, what was the most useful ways to get it done, how to ask for better pricing, what to say about like the total numbers you're likely to print in a year in order to negotiate that pricing, you know, none of that hurts him. In fact, when I arrived at the printer to start doing that work, it actually, they love him more. Because yeah, I've sent them more business. So it, if you're going to recommend people printers and processes, make sure they attach your name to that new business. And it's probably going to help you both. Yeah, absolutely it does, right? And, you know, if, if everyone in Manitoba, right, all got together and said, we're all going to print our books following a very specific schedule, we could negotiate better rates from Friesen's. Yeah, didn't we right? did that with our, our last art book. We printed completely separate books, completely separate artwork, but I printed my art book and you printed your art book at the same time and we were able to negotiate a better price because we were following the same format. Yeah, because the page type was the same, the cover yeah. stock was the same, they could set up and all the trim sizes would stay the same, so there was less time of them between machine setup, as far as I, we understood, as far as it was explained to us. So yeah, like yeah. that kind of stuff, you know, if you know five people who are, who are printing comics or graphic novels or books, it doesn't matter if the content is the same, if the form, if the shape of the book is going to be the same, you guys should go together or pick a representative to negotiate printing five books instead of one. And I guarantee you the total cost per unit will come down. And it's not even playing hardball. It's actually beneficial to the printer to line up that work, right? The reason they give you that discount or they'll negotiate that discount is because, oh, we have projects lined up. Now they can take a deep breath. Oh, and we know the print, which press is used that is scheduling. Oh, and we know what to order for paper, right? They get all of that stuff. The, the more they can plan ahead, the lower their cost to operate is and the better it is for everybody. So there's a few industry secrets that we usually shut from the rooftop. Not too many people uh, <laughs> listen, but uh, we shout it whenever we can. There's also, Dan, I think a um, unfortunate belief that if you're offering something that's good advice that you're going to be involved in, that it must be just so that you get more than them. Hmm. If, if Justin and I approached someone and said, we're printing our, you know, Justin's printing his new book, it's this dimensions. Gregory's printing his new book, it's this dimensions. Do you have a book? those dimensions negotiate a lower price together if you know them well if this was just like a you know a casual acquaintance their first assumption because that's unfortunately what business trains people to do is that you're only asking them so you'll get more than them right there's that natural predilection to distrust a good offer right and um that's unfortunate but that is also part of what's going on when people are hiding what's good for them. Actually, probably the, um, the most common thing that we'd run into was um, people would want to know what sells best at your table. Oh, yeah. And then try to emulate that. Like, what's selling for you? Because I'm going to yeah. go and draw the exact same thing and hopefully jump on that same train. Yeah, totally. That seems, that seems weird uh, and... 
possibly flawed because if they come up to you and say that at one convention, that's like in say the springtime and they've gone off and they've drawn a bunch of stuff for the next convention, which is a month or two later, something different might be selling for you, right? You don't always have the exact same thing selling every single show, do you? Yeah, no, no, no. It's huge range. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not, that's not a great idea. I don't think. Yeah. Well, and what I found is that I just answered that question. Now at first I was like, Oh, this is kind of like weird or usury or whatever. Now I just answer. Like I was at a show. (laughs) This is in the Wayback machine now in the before times. But someone's like, what's your best selling print right now? I'm like, I made these gnome prints. And for whatever reason, <laughs> show, I sold like 150 of these gnome prints. Uh, and the guy, and I'm more well known for doing these like horror, sci-fi, fantasy stuff. But I just was working on uh, Snow Troll's Daughter and I had done all this like production work and sort of like pre-designed stuff and so I had all this like artwork and so I had printed up a bunch of them just for fun and for whatever reason at that one show they hit the zeitgeist and I it was embarrassing how many of them I sold because I only printed that many of them uh by mistake I hadn't (laughs) read that I had sent all my files to the printer in that city and normally when I do that uh, I have like a uh I have a Dropbox file that has all of my files in there with the PDFs named. And sometimes I'll go in and adjust if I know that something is not a big seller. I'll adjust the total numbers I need by renaming the PDF. And I had forgotten to do that. So at that show, I ended up with, you know, 200 of these freaking gnomes. And I was like, oh no, how am I going to get these home? This is so heavy. What am I going to do? And at that show for... I don't know why. I guess maybe because I had so many, I put them on display a lot. Uh, I sold them like just uh, too many of them. And so when the person <laughs> came up and was like, wow, what's your best selling? I'm like, this gnome, the look of incredulity on their face because their thought was exactly what Justin's saying. I'm going to draw whatever you answer. And then they heard that answer and they're like, I'm not drawing that. That's, <laughs> there's no way that... Right? That is not... You must be lying to me. There's no way that... Gnome print is the one. To be. So you just never know, right? You can't, it's never up to you what's going to work, right? And every now and then sure. a mistake turns into a benefit, which was that, you know, that show, it was like that. There's been other times when I'm like, oh, you know, this is the horror crowd. This is, um, uh, you know, where were we in Chicago, which has like lots yeah. of horror conventions and there's like a big, and I printed, I overprinted a bunch of things I was sure, just positive, would hit. No, those weren't the ones. Those were the ones I all took home. And it was stuff that they didn't get, you know? Like, I tried to overplan for what I thought the city had a had a uh, appetite for. But it turned out lots of people are providing that. So it was the things I had that were different than that that actually sold. Science fiction is supposed to be about the future. Why are the fans so obsessed with the past? Earlier in convention days, I would write kind of not like extensive postmortems, but I would try to make lists of what did well in what city. Like Calgary really liked video game stuff and 90s nostalgia stuff. So, and like not as much anime stuff. So the next year I would try to adhere to that, but it, it never stayed true. You know, like it never worked out the way that on paper I thought it would. Because the next year suddenly... Yeah, everybody switched gears and now they're into this and that and the other thing. 
So the, the products that I thought were going to sell equally well the next year are, are not. And all this new random stuff is selling really well. It was so hard to quantify, you know? And like what Dan said, as soon as you hear from somebody that, oh yeah, this is selling really well, by the time you are able to jump on that bandwagon, people have already moved on to something else. So it's, it's not a great way to go about, um, like go about making your portfolio. Uh, but I, I think like starting out, it's, you, you should just kind of try everything. You have no idea what's going to stick on the wall and what's going to fall. Um, but just kind of try a little bit of everything was my tactic when, when I first started making prints and the whole shatter vector thing was just one day I thought, Hey, maybe I'll try this style out. Now I've, I've built a whole company off of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and as we wrap back up around on our hour here, it comes back around to what we were talking about is that we're in a way at a new square one, right? Nobody knows what's going to work anymore. Nobody knows how shows are going to go. Nobody knows if there'll be shows again. If they start up again, they'll probably be small, you know. Um, but your love of that stuff is what brought you there in the first place. So just go back to that. Go back to that thing that is driving you, that, that thing that makes you, you know, stay up until the wee hours of the night, you know, because you don't know what's going to hit anymore. So just get back to the, sheer love of making it take it to those smaller shows take it to those new places put it online try your print on demand stuff and then make more of what's selling you know but start first with the um start first with the the joy of just creating things Mm -hmm. um yeah i don't know anything to add to that justin i was I meant to, to tell you guys like the, the other day I, I've opened my, my online store again and um, shipping is, is unfortunately expensive. To move like a single print across the, the country can, can be a little prohibitive when it's like a $20 print, but it costs $25 to ship it. That, that kind of sucks. Um, so what I've done is I've just kind of compiled a bunch of print packs so you can buy like all my batman stuff at once and all my robot stuff at once and kind of you know you get a a discount for buying multiple prints and they all come in one big pack and then that helps offset uh the shipping cost as well and it's just kind of my way of making things a bit easier on me and making it a little more cost efficient for for the people um but as i was in the back room as i'm getting these print packs together i have a bunch of my convention bags out and i'm bagging up like piles of prints for the first time since February and like I almost teared up at like the the nostalgia that hit me of like oh my god like going to a show and and selling a group of prints in a bag and seeing somebody's excitement I miss that so much oh I know and it was it was kind of like I kind of hit me unaware of how much I missed it until I was putting together a a package of prints like I would at a convention and how much I'm, I'm missing that and excited for it to come back it, okay so on that exact topic so last night you know it's late i'm drawing in all these books and the missing element you know when somebody would pick a book up from us in person it's their conversation or a little bit of their personality that usually informed whether i was conscious of it or not what i drew in the book 
And I found mm-hmm. I hit this like run of like 10 sketches where it just, they all were awful. They were just like, I was like, oh man, I'm sorry, whoever gets this one, this is a bad drawing. Um, but I realized that what was missing is that I didn't have that reflective element of art making and like that joy of like, ooh, the excitement of like, will the book even be any good, right? All of those things, uh, like play into the moment you're doing the sketch. And so I actually started to remember, I tried to remember interactions of some of my favorite interactions with people at shows and keep that at the front of my mind. And that got the drawing juices flowing. Like I just, it all came back. I was like, oh, if I was drawing it for that guy, okay, oh, now I'm drawing it for that person. Oh, now I'm drawing it for that person. And then I started thinking of like our regulars, like say Jessica or people like that, Justin, who you'll know, who we would see every time we get off a plane, you know, oh, if I was drawing it for that person, this is what I'd be doing. And it, it was this like false connection I had to create in order to stay invested in that drawing process. So, right. We are definitely feeling the absences, but doing our best to fill them with art. Yeah. Having that, that social connection and interaction with every sale. It's, uh, it's very strange not having that anymore. We're like, we were so used to getting, not just a small dose of it, but like an overwhelming overdose of social interactions on a weekend and now not having any at all. It's, it's, yeah, it's bizarre. Dan, can I ask you as a show runner where your head is at with that stuff? Uh, well, I'm obviously just sitting back and waiting to see what happens. Um, as far as, Change. Like, I think there are some elements to, to what's happening now that are never going to go away. I think masks will be here to stay in some form at these events. I think that I think these, these events will come back. They're too popular uh, not to. So many people love going to cons. It's just it's just, just a, a fun thing to do that they will be back, but it's, they're going to look very different. It wouldn't surprise me to see, um, you know, distance tables and fewer people and arrows pointing in certain directions. All the stuff that we become used to in our grocery stores uh, will probably be the case for um, for cons, I think. And that I don't think that will go away. Even with the vaccine, we're all so aware now of, of germs and and the transmission of germs that it's just kind of ingrained into us now that we're going to any massive event uh, where there's going to be lots of people, they're going to be taking precautions no matter what. I think that's just one part of the, fact of life now. One of the big drivers of sort of average people going to comic shows. I don't mean average. Like uh, what I mean is like not creators, right? right. Just like yeah. consumers, fans, like, shows, fans, um, uh, going to shows was this promise of a direct interaction in the photo ops of big celebrities. You know, you could get your picture taken hugging your favorite celebrity. And that is a huge economic driver of so many of those shows, tens of thousands of people showing up to spend a minute or two or three in direct physical contact, not like shaking hands, but like a lot of those celebs would get right into it in the photos with you. Yeah. I've seen photos. Right. That's going to be gone now. Yeah. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to stand beside them or something. Um, I don't even know if they'll be able to do the photo ops. Uh, You know, they'll have to take certain precautions with that. Imagine Um, 
photo hop photo with six foot or 12 foot or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's six feet like, apart. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like pictures that my dad would take of me by a monument, right? <laughs> That's what they'll look like. Um, so, you know, there'll be some, and so maybe events that are more focused on uh, the true delving into like the genre making, fan making elements like FanQuest might do better, right? Yeah. Because you're trying to bring a AAA list celebrity for a $50,000 guarantee. Instead, you're saying, hey, do you 15 people want to participate in a workshop about how to make this specific thing related to your fandom? Right? That's been more the focus of things at FanQuest. And that, yeah, I, I would think, say we're, we're more focused um, on the, the people who are fans. Even when we do bring in actors and people who are part of these things, uh, they're usually huge fans themselves. So there's that as well. Um, and I honestly, in, in talking to a lot of people, yes, the, the celebrities and the big names, the William Shatner's of the world do get a lot of the attention when it comes to conventions. And you guys, of course, you've been to the big ones at, at San Diego, New York, and that kind of stuff where there are the, the biggest celebrities at these events. But even when they come to Winnipeg and they're, they're, you know, somewhat big celebrities, when I talk to people about that, and I did, I've, I have for years as I've gone to these conventions, asking people what brings them two cons not a ton of them will say the celebrity guests they'll say i want to you know see the artists that i haven't seen in a long time i want to meet up with friends that i haven't seen in a long time so for a lot of people these conventions are like the one time of year that they'll get together with certain friends or or maybe they do it multiple times a year but only at conventions it's the only time they see these friends and i think that's what people are missing the most out of this right now of, of not being able to see their friends and not being able to hang out and celebrate all the things they love together. So that's, that's going to come back first. I think that's going to be the part of it that comes back first. And then the celebrities right now, the celebrities are all doing their, um, if you, if you, if, if there are stars available for this kind of thing, they're doing it from home, right? They're doing zoom calls and they're doing remote autograph signings and that kind of stuff. Um, that's already started happening. I get emails from wizard world every, every week telling me about a new wizard world panel that's that's coming up and that works i mean it is fun it does work we've seen a number of different examples of these live panels that have done really well even i would say the panels we did for the fan quest halloween ball that was a lot of fun and, and that was the most popular part of that thing um but yeah eventually and i think we could we could even conduct that at the event so if we held a, a fan quest where there we were doing proper social distancing and masks and directional arrows and everything and hand sanitizer we could do like a remote celebrity guest right have them on a big screen in a big room and people can still be distanced and, and still interact with that person on um on the uh in the zoom call or whatever it is right yeah it'll be interesting yeah. to see i think there's a missing element i don't know what the x is but there is a yeah. solve for x portion still to come um uh uh Maybe, you know, 2020 is not over. We we haven't had an alien invasion yet. So, <laughs> kind of perfect bingo card, right? <laughs> We've got, like, corrupt elections and pandemics and civil unrest and, right? We just haven't had a good alien invasion. We have economic collapses. We have uh, natural disasters. crisis, <laughs> natural disasters. Uh, I'm... You know, I'm holding out hope for an alien invasion as the like big X factor in this year. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made, how Kickstarters get fulfilled, and the future of shows to come. This is Gregory Kamichuk encouraging you to join the fight and make comics. <laughs>